you would, turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's the, the first book in the New Testament, the first account we have of the life of Jesus. We've been walking through this since uh, December. And I just want to remind you of some things that we've said so far, particularly about this section of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, in chapters 5 through 7, Jesus is doing what, what we would call preaching a sermon. Um, we've said that this sermon... What he's doing is he is describing what life in God's kingdom looks like. The kingdom is a big theme for Matthew. We'll talk about that some more in the sermon. Uh, but in the Sermon on the Mount, which is what it's traditionally called, uh, Jesus is describing kingdom life. What it looks like if you want to follow Jesus, if you're in Christ and your life is being transformed by the Spirit, this is what it will become. That's, so if you want a, a manual on Christian discipleship, you can read Matthew 5 through 7 and get a pretty good idea of what following Jesus looks like. Um, in part that we're looking at, uh, Jesus is teaching us how to pray. Last week, Jesus told us how not to pray. You may think, gosh, is there a wrong way to pray? And Jesus says, yes. Uh, Jesus taught us how hypocrites pray. Now, hypocrites pray to be seen by others, for the approval of others. And Jesus tells us that if you know God as your Father, you don't need the approval of others. You don't have to have your prayers heard by anyone else but Him. Jesus also told us how pagans pray, the Gentiles, those who didn't worship the one true God. They, they vomit up uh, Heaps and heaps of empty words so that they can try to get God's attention. Jesus says, if you know God as your father, you don't have to get his attention with fancy words or the volume that you speak. You can simply, you can pray simply because he knows what you need. And so uh, having taught us how not to pray, Jesus now tells us how to pray. This, is made, this may be some words that you're familiar with. It's commonly called the Lord's Prayer. The Bible doesn't call it that. That's what it's been called throughout history. Maybe you've said these words before, prayed these words before. Um, it would probably be more accurate to call it the disciples' prayer, not the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is teaching his disciples, his followers, how to pray. Um, if that causes you a little bit of heartburn, like I said, the Bible doesn't call it the Lord's Prayer, so I'm not changing anything in Scripture if we call it the Disciples' Prayer, okay? Um, but whether you're familiar with it or not, here's what I want you to do as I read Jesus' words. I want you to compare what you think prayer is. Or if you're a praying person, a religious person, a Christian, um, what your prayers typically focus on, right? So whether if you're not a praying person or you're not a religious person, you're still trying to figure out this whole Christian thing, maybe you don't pray, but maybe you have some idea of what you think prayer is. I want you to get that fixed in your brain. Or if you regularly pray, go ahead and get that fixed in your brain. And then I want you to compare it to what Jesus says about prayer in these verses. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 6. Uh, I'm going to read verses 9 through 15, uh, but we're just going to focus in the sermon this week on verses 9 and 10. But I wanted to read the whole thing for you 
uh, so that you have the, the, whole, the whole thing in view. Let's give our attention to God's word. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Thus far the reading of God's word. While the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray and ask for his help. Lord Jesus, would you teach us to pray? You've told us how to, how, how, what our hearts need to look like, what our motives are. Lord, would you teach us now how to pray and show us how these prayers change us and change the world around us? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What typically is your focus in prayer? What are the things that you normally focus on? I noticed this week, so I've preached uh, these verses before, but as I, as I came to them again this week, uh, something stuck out to me. The last thing that Jesus says to his disciples before he teaches them to pray is, your father knows what you need before you ask. Your father knows what you need. Now, the way that I would then finish that statement is, your father knows what you need, so there ain't no sense in asking. But that's not how Jesus, that's not what Jesus says. He says, your father knows what you need, so pray like this. This then is how you are to pray. Uh, Paul Miller, who's a Bible teacher um, and uh, a friend, he, I listened to his podcast and caught this this week. Um, compare the way that we typically do life with what Jesus says in John 5.19. Here's what Jesus says there, talking about himself. The son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. And this is what Miller helped me see. Let's put that in a modern context. Imagine that you're having lunch at Neighborhood Grill, uh, and you overhear uh, the conversation at the table next to you. You overhear a young man say these words, I can't do anything on my own. I, only, I can only do what my dad does. If you were to hear a grown man say that, what, would, what, what, what words would be running through your mind? Homeboy needs to grow up. Right? Time to get some maturity. You can only do what your dad does? Man, time to move out of the basement, brother. Right? Jesus is the most mature man who ever lived. And he is completely dependent upon his father. That's what prayer is. I would argue that the reason 
we don't pray, at least as often as we ought, is not time, though that's a hurdle. And it's not confusion, though that's a hurdle. We don't necessarily know what we need to pray for. Those are, those are real obstacles. I don't want to pretend that they're not, but they're smaller to an even greater obstacle, a greater reason why we don't pray. And it's simply this. We don't think we need to. We don't pray because we don't think we need to pray. Why do I say that? Well, we make time and figure out how to do all manner of things that we need to do. We need to eat, so we make time to work, and we figure out how to work. We figure out how to go get food and prepare food, right? We don't want to get sick when we eat. We need clean dishes, so we clean the dishes, and we figure out how to do it. We make time, and we figure out how to do things we need to do. And so I'm going to argue that the reason we don't pray is because we don't simply think we need to. We are not dependent in the same way that Jesus is. We fancy ourselves pretty competent, pretty capable. We'll ask for God's help if we need it, but otherwise prayer is this extra thing, right? It's the nuclear option. Should we run out of runway, then we'll pray. That was, that was my approach to prayer for years in ministry here. Right? My approach, without even really verbalizing, was I'm going to go as far as I can go, and if the plane still hasn't taken off from the runway, then I'll ask God to help. And then what I, need to, what I needed to see and what we need to see is that actually there is no runway. The, the plane won't go anywhere. It won't even start. There is no plane if we don't pray. Prayer is the runway, it's the fuel in the tank, it's everything. We pray because we need to. Jesus prayed because he needed to. We are dependent upon our Heavenly Father for everything. And if you look at this prayer, it covers everything. It's very simple, and yet it covers all of life. And so Jesus is teaching us in this prayer what to focus on. But before we even get to the focus, I just wanted you to to see that, right? In the same way that breathing is necessary, in the same way that eating is necessary, prayer is necessary. It is not extra. It is necessary. And so when Jesus says, pray then like this, he's showing us what we really need. He's telling us what we need to ask for. He's teaching teaching us what to focus on. So few things we're going to look at. First, we're going to look at who God is. Jesus wants us to focus on who God is and how we approach him. Second, Jesus wants us to focus on God's honor. Third, God's kingdom. And fourth, God's rule. If that sounds like a long sermon, it might be. I'll try to keep an eye on the clock. Jesus tells us to focus on who God is. And how we approach him. When we come to God, we call him our father. And just as an aside, notice that all of the pronouns are plural. This is a community prayer. Jesus is saying, y'all pray like this. Our father. Uh, This is how adopted sons and daughters approach the Lord in prayer. And this is not common. 
uh, in other religions at the time. This was, this was the radical claim of Christianity. It's not how Jewish people in Jesus' day prayed. It's not how Muslims pray. It's not how any other variety of religions around the world pray today. This was unique to Christianity. It is the radical claim of Christianity. No one can call God Father by right. No one emerges from the womb able to claim God as their father. You must be adopted into the family. And the only way to be adopted into the family is by trusting in Jesus, the true son. Only then can we be called sons and daughters. So our adoption is what gives us the ability to approach God in prayer. So, Christian, when you pray, remember your position. Not the position of your body, that is somewhat irrelevant. But the position of your soul before God. The position of your identity as his son or daughter. That when you approach the throne of God, you approach as a blood-bought son or daughter. You can call him father. Jesus also says this. He's our father in heaven. And so this reminds us of God's majesty, right? If in, if in the name father we have familiarity... In the, in the uh, description in heaven, we are reminded of God's majesty. He is the, the ruler. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of everything. All-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. That is who he is. That is what we were reminded of when we say our Father in heaven. So when you pray, remember your position, but also remember God's majesty. Who it is that you are approaching And now put those two together. If you're a Christian, when you pray, you have access, family privilege, to the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. All things seen and unseen. Uh, There's a famous picture of JFK in the Oval Office the young, younger folks, he was a former president, John F. Kennedy. Uh, and in this picture, uh, Kennedy is working at his desk in the Oval Office. And there's a door on the front of his desk, and the door is open. And his son, John Jr., is playing under the desk at his feet. If you're a Christian, that's the picture of you. Here, John Jr. is playing in the office Of the most powerful man in the world. Christian, you have access to the most powerful person in the entire universe, and you get to call him Father. That's what we need to remember as we approach God in prayer the access and majesty of the one to whom we are talking. The next thing that Jesus wants us to focus on is God's honor. It's translated and has been for a long time, hallowed be your name. That word doesn't really resonate with most of us. Uh, In fact, your Bible may have lots of footnotes at the bottom of this. So just this is a quick aside on, on Bible translations. When it comes to really familiar passages like the Lord's Prayer, 
Bible translators typically don't mess with them. They leave them the way they've been translated for a long time because if people turn to it, like if they're shopping for a Bible and they turn to a familiar place and they see like that the words are really different, they'll go, oh, must not be the Bible, right? And so translators know like John 3.16, if that's what it looks like in King James, we're not going to mess with it because that's what it's supposed to sound like. Lord's Prayer is the same way. So a word like, a command like hallowed be your name is left in there even though it doesn't necessarily make sense to us. What is Jesus telling us to do? Or what is, what is, excuse me, what is Jesus telling us to ask God to do? To let his name be honored and revered as holy. We, K.O. mentioned that in his call to repentance. Uh, we want God's name to be feared. We want it to be honored and revered, treated with awe. In the Bible, a person's name represents who that person is. So, to revere or honor God's name is to revere and honor God. But that should raise a question in your mind. Isn't God already honored? Isn't God already holy? Why, why do I need to pray about this? Why do I need God to hallow his name? Well, two reasons. We're unwilling and we're unable Right? Unwilling. Ask a, a seven-year-old to give her mother the glory that her mother deserves. If that seven-year-old is unhappy with mom at the moment, she will be unwilling. Right? Her own, her own selfishness, her own sin will blind her to her mother's glory. She will be unwilling to revere or honor her mother's name. We're unwilling. And we're also unable, even if that seven-year-old uh, is in a good mood and uh, she and mom aren't on the outs, she still doesn't have the vocabulary that really plums the depths of her mother's glory, does she? She needs help to honor uh, her mom. If you ask a blind man to describe the sunrise, he can describe its warmth but he can't really comprehend the cascade of colors created by the morning sun as it burns across the horizon and into the clouds. The reason that we don't honor God's name is because we're often unable. Uh, we're blind to reality and we need help. Paul says in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve, we see now dimly. Our eyesight is limited by our own sinful selves. We either refuse to see God's glory or we long to see it, but we're limited in our ability to comprehend it. And so we ask God to hallow his name. We ask God to fixate our hearts and make them beat for his glory. That's what we're praying for in this prayer, in this first petition. That God would cause his name to be honored and glorified and revered in our own hearts and in our own lives. He's already worthy of, uh, worthy of honor and glory. He's already holy. But what we're asking is that he would show himself to be more glorious to us. That he would change us from the inside out. And then we pray that too. That God would cause his name to be honored throughout our church 
throughout our community, throughout our nation, throughout our world. This is actually the great goal of history. What was forfeited in the garden was fellowship with God and dependence on God, glory for God and good for man. Adam and Eve, in choosing glory for themselves, severed themselves from God. Jesus came to reconnect that. And in his name, God's glory and honor then spread across the nations. That's the goal. And so we're praying that God would accomplish the great goal of all of, the, of all of his people worshiping and glorifying his name, right? So that's God's honor, which connects us then to the next focus Jesus gives us, and that's God's kingdom. Jesus says, let your kingdom come, or may your kingdom come. As I mentioned earlier, kingdom, the kingdom of God, is a major focus for Matthew. It's why the series is called Behold Your King. And as we've said before, when we talk about God's kingdom, we're talking about his rule in your life. We're talking about his rule internally in his people, but also as that rule then spreads out into the world. We want to see people bow the knee to King Jesus. Because we know that when people bow the knee to King Jesus, things become as they ought to be. But again, we have this question, if God is already king, as we would say he is, he is the ruler, nothing is outside of his plan, he accomplishes all that he, uh, that he wants to. If God is already king and scripture affirms that, then why do we need to pray for his kingdom to come? C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book Prince Caspian, gives us a good illustration of this. In that book, um, Aslan is the king of Narnia. But it's been a long time since Aslan has been seen. And it's still his kingdom. Narnia still belongs to Aslan. But rival kings have come in. And they've set up a false kingdom. And so all the inhabitants, all the citizens of Narnia are oppressed. And they're tortured. And many of them have grown cynical and unbelieving. Aslan's name is all but forgotten. And when it's remembered... It's really more like a fairy tale than a real person. C.S. Lewis is giving us a picture of our own day, our own reality. This world and all that's in it still belongs to God, but a rival king has come in and set up an alternative kingdom. Now, we call him Satan. And Paul calls him the God of this world. He set up a rival kingdom Kingdoms, we might say. And so what we have currently is a conflict between two kingdoms. God's, set up under the true king, Jesus, and Satan's, which is at war against it. And at his first coming, Jesus inaugurated God's kingdom. When he came, he announced the arrival of the kingdom. And that kingdom now is growing, Jesus says. We're going to talk more about this as we go through Matthew but when Jesus returns at the second coming, he will complete the kingdom. So we live in between the two comings of Jesus. And it's in this in-between time that we pray, Lord, bring the kingdom. May your kingdom come. Here's what we're asking. 
We're asking in the present that people, ourselves, our children, our families, our church, our community, our nation, our world, we're praying that people would bow the knee to Jesus. That people would trust in Jesus. And they would be filled with his spirit and begin living the reality of God's kingdom. That's what we're praying in the present when we pray, your kingdom come. But this prayer also has a future dimension. We're praying that Jesus would come quickly. We're praying that his kingdom would come, that God would bring the fullness of the kingdom soon, that all things would be made right, that all things would be made new. That's what we're praying. That's what we're focusing on when we talk about God's kingdom. And then finally, Jesus tells us to focus on God's will. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know why we have conflict and turmoil here? Do you know why there's conflict and turmoil in your home? Rival wills. Right? Mom has her will. Dad has his will. Junior has his will. Daughter has her will. Right? You have all of these wills conflicting with each other. All these different want-tos. Right? I want this. I want this. I want this. And when you have conflicting wills, You have conflict and turmoil. There is no peace. But in heaven, there is no conflict. There is no peace. Because God's will is done in heaven. There is no rival will to his will. And we're praying, when we pray this, that God would make life on earth like that in heaven. We're praying that God would help us to understand his will. And he's given us a whole book to help us do that. That God would help us to understand his will and do his will on earth as it is in heaven. Now, that idea of there being, you know, of losing your will, right? The idea that that in heaven there's no conflict because there's no rival wills. There's only one will and that's God's will. That may sound really terrible to you. That, I mean, to, to lose your will, to lose your want, is, in a sense, to lose yourself. And that would be terrible if we were talking about another human being. Right? If my will is imposed on you, if my will were universally imposed, that would be terrible for everyone. Including me. Because I do not have your best interest in mind. Maybe sometimes, but more often than not, it's my glory, right? And so when I try to impose my will on others, it has nasty consequences. Think about the country of North Korea, ironically called the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea. It's called a democratic republic, and yet it's been ruled by the same people uh, since 1949, one family, There is one will to be done in North Korea, and that is the will of Kim Jong-un. You cannot question his will, or it will have dangerous consequences. And so Kim Jong-un lives in lavish riches while his people starve in the countryside. And they are punished for stepping out of line. That's what it looks like if a human will is to be done. But that is not God. 
What if, what if there was a fully good will? What if there was a fully generous will? A fully loving will? What if there was a being whose will for absolute glory coincided perfectly with your absolute good? So that his glory and your good were the same thing. That's the God of the Bible, my friend. When we ask for his will to be done, we are asking for what is best to happen in our lives. His glory and our good are lined up perfectly. That doesn't mean that I always like the way that that goes. That's where my rival will runs into the concrete wall of his will. But it's why we're asking for God to soften our hearts so that we would know his will, so that we would want what he wants, that his will would be our will, and so that we would do his will. How different would my home be if when I left work, I stopped in a parking lot on the way home, put the car in park, and prayed, Lord, let your will, as it's done in heaven, be done in my home this evening. What if we set our minds that way on God's will for our lives? That's what Jesus wants us to pray, to conform our wills to God's will. Now, I'll close with this thought. These are not safe prayers. To pray for God's name to be honored means that my name will not be. I may not be honored or recognized. To pray for God's kingdom to come means that I have to yield my control or the illusion of control. That doesn't feel very safe. To pray for God's will to be done means that I have to acknowledge that he wants better than I want. And that his way is better than my way. And so if you're praying this, just stand on notice, you're giving up a lot. If you pray this way honestly, you're giving up a lot. So I want to comfort you and let you know that the only way to pray this way honestly is to realize you're not the first one to pray this way. The most mature man who ever lived, the Lord Jesus, prayed this way. And he prayed this way in the moment of his greatest need. When he was sweating so profusely that Luke says it was like great drops of blood. It was the night of his arrest, the night before the day that he would be tortured and executed. The night before the day that he would be separated from his father, whom he had known for all eternity. Jesus prayed, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. The Lord Jesus wrestled with the Father's will for his life. He knew the cost, and it was the cost that caused him to pray, Lord, if there's some other way, can we do that? But here's how Jesus finished that prayer. Not my will, but yours be done. And because Jesus prayed that way, 
you and I can be safe in praying the very same thing. Because in praying that way, Jesus unlocked eternal fellowship with God the Father for every person who trusts in him. And so I come back to where I started. Do you know God as your Father? Have you come to the Father through Jesus the Son? Have you trusted in Christ alone for salvation? And if you have, are you focusing on God's priorities in your life? Are you praying these things that we have described? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for opening the way to the Father in heaven. Thank you for bringing his will to bear perfectly in our lives. Lord, would you help us to trust you? For those of us who have not yet trusted you as our Savior and Lord, I pray that you would work that this morning, that you would work faith in our hearts so that we receive and rest upon you alone. And for those of us who have received and rest upon, rested upon you alone for salvation, would you keep us close? Would you help us to pray for those things that are unsafe to us but are pleasing to you and to see that your glory and our good are one and the same? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.